the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Returning to America's roots, this is The Right Take. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome one and all to the first episode of The Right Take in the year 2023, episode number 87 overall. We hope you guys enjoyed that new intro. That actually is uh, one of several liners recorded by our friend Alex Hall, who's one of our earliest guests on the show, that we had kind of been sitting on for a while. It was kind of gathering digital dust in the vo- in the virtual vault, and uh, we have n- rescored that one with a new synthwave track, as always, by the great Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, from which we get all of our music for our intros and outros. We hope you guys all had a wonderful, happy, and safe New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day holiday. And there's a lot to talk about already. At the time, of course, that this episode is posted, it will be just about 24 hours before one of the remaining crucial leadership elections in American politics in the aftermath of the 2022 midterms. And that is, of course, the race for the speakership of the united states house representatives i'm your host eric lendrum here with my co-host jacob grandstaff 
Let's get right down to business, as always. So on January 3rd, there will be an election among all voting members of the House of Representatives to decide the next speaker for the next two years. This race is shaping up to be actually kind of an interesting one, even if the outcome is ultimately what we expect. There's been a lot of interesting dynamics along the way here and some late breaking stories that may impact the results in a in a way that we kind of couldn't see coming, but also may have seen coming if you know the history of the involved candidates enough. Quick recap here, as we've talked about before on the show. On November 15th, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California's now 20th district after redistricting defeated his challenger, former Freedom Caucus Chairman Andy Biggs, Arizona's 5th district, in the closed-door conference vote, which determined the official GOP nomination for Speaker of the House. He got 188 votes to Biggs' 31 votes. And I think the fact this was a closed-door vote definitely helped McCarthy here. If it was public, if it was an open ballot where everyone could see the votes of the members of Congress, it would have been closer, I think. Kind of like the initial vote to not remove Liz Cheney from leadership before they finally did. So Kevin McCarthy is the official nominee for the GOP. Despite this, Biggs has vowed that he will challenge McCarthy in the open floor general election tomorrow on January 3rd. So we'll see how that goes. Meanwhile, the Democrats unanimously nominated Uh, New York's 8th District Representative Hakeem Jeffries in a voice vote on November 30th. He, of course, has been kind of groomed by Nancy Pelosi to be her protege for quite a few years now. He's been waiting in the wings. It was always a given this guy was going to be the new leader. It was never going to be Adam Schiff or Steny Hoyer or anyone else. It was always going to be Hakeem Jeffries. So, of course, they now can chalk up another uh, identity politics milestone. You know, Pelosi was the first female speaker, and this guy is now going to be the first uh, black leader of either of the major parties in the history of the House of Representatives. And most likely he will be speaker one day. Now, as after all the dust settles, as it stands, the Republicans hold 222 seats, which is just four above the minimum threshold for majority, which is 218. Now, to clarify some things about the process with how the speakership election works, in order to win, a candidate must receive a majority of votes that are cast. It is not a plurality like most you know, elections in the United States, like primaries and whatnot. If no one wins an outright majority, that's 50% plus one, Then the vote has to go to a second ballot and then to as many ballots as needed in succession until someone finally gets a majority. Kind of like how presidential nominations used to be decided way back in the good old days, right? When it was decided at conventions by the party bosses, fat cats wearing their top hats and smoking their cigars in back rooms, not, you know, the current primary system we have now. The last time that multiple ballots were needed to elect a speaker this way was exactly 100 years ago in 1923 when Republican Frederick H. Gillett was elected after nine ballots. And that, to this day, remains the only time since the Civil War that a speakership election went to multiple ballots. There are already allegedly at least five conservative Republicans who have threatened to not vote for McCarthy. That, of course, would put him right down below the 218 threshold that is needed. Now, again, They need to win a majority of votes that are cast. So this can, of course, be affected by some members not being present due to sickness or what have you. But very rarely will members skip out on a vote like this, especially one that's this important. Members can also choose to vote present, meaning that their vote is counted and and adds to the overall total, making 218 usually the threshold for majority. But they obviously don't support either candidate. They just show up to they show up announce that they have showed up and they don't vote one way or the other. They could also choose to throw away their votes for no people who are not members of Congress. Like people will jokingly vote for Ron Paul or uh, uh, Colin Powell or others, or maybe they'll vote for members of the Senate. But again, an election as close as this one, as important as this one, 
don't expect anybody to be throwing away their votes here. Only serious candidates will receive votes. So where does the race stand right now? President Trump, interestingly enough, in a sit-down interview with Breitbart recently, endorsed Kevin McCarthy for speaker, basically saying, let's give him a shot, and has called on his conservative supporters in Congress who oppose McCarthy to stand down, basically. Not stand by and stand ready, unfortunately, but to stand down completely and let McCarthy have his chance at being a speaker. There have been reports recently, and this is coming from the Washington Examiner, which is a garbage publication, so take it with a grain of salt. But there have been reports that several members, Republican members of Congress, have privately gone to House Minority Whip Steve Scalise from Louisiana's 1st District and have been warning him to be on standby. You know, whereas Trump called on the supporters to stand down, others have gone to Scalise and told him to be on standby in the event that McCarthy fails to win enough Republican support. Now, we got to have a flashback here real quickly, of course, to why when people say, oh, McCarthy's going to be speaker, it's over, it's over. Seven years ago, people were saying exactly that. Seven years ago, Kevin McCarthy was supposed to become Speaker of the House. In 2015, after uh, John Boehner from Ohio resigned the speakership, then-Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy was widely seen as the favorite to win. But he faced opposition from the Freedom Caucus, that group of uh, 30-something members of hardcore conservatives who forced Boehner to resign— They turned around and said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't support McCarthy either. He's not conservative enough. Between that and a very strange alleged affair, extramarital affair between McCarthy and a fellow representative named Renee Elmers, uh, which was – it kind of came out of nowhere. No one had ever really talked about it. It suddenly arose when he ran for speaker and then kind of faded away after that. He didn't get Me Too'd or anything. It just kind of came up and then went away. And those two things ultimately led to McCarthy stepping down and letting – Paul Ryan take the gavel, and we all know how that went. So ultimately, one of the major arguments that has been made in favor of McCarthy is that allegedly, and I have my sources on this that are fairly high up. I'm not going to name names, obviously, but I've talked to people familiar with the situation. I'm pulling a mainstream media move right here, but these are reliable sources. Allegedly, arguments in favor of McCarthy is that He is not as firm in his rhino beliefs as you would believe, and certainly in comparison to his would-be predecessors, Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Some have said that he is simply a leaf in the wind. He will just go wherever the political winds are blowing him, uh, whichever, you know, certain people who are better at strong-arming him than others, whoever is the best at very decisively persuading him will have their say. You know, whoever has his ear a little bit more. Somebody like that would be really, really helpful as opposed to a Paul Ryan who is a fiscal conservative and dogmatic in his beliefs. Exactly. That is exactly the point. And Boehner was exactly the same way. Boehner was a hardcore moderate. And this, and the mainstream media has already, there have been articles out there promoting this, you know, trying to fear monger among the left. Like, McCarthy is speaker will basically make Marjorie Taylor Greene the shadow speaker of the House. Like, she'll have all the influence. And, and who knows? Maybe that's true. Maybe um, Speaker McCarthy will be the shadow speaker of the House if Trump is president, which is, you know, a good thing for us. Exactly. Exactly. I think McCarthy could be influenced by Trump because unlike McConnell and other leaders in the Republican Party, McConnell has gone or excuse me, McCarthy has gone to Mar-a-Lago on several occasions to visit and meet with President Trump. That right there is a sign of good grace, obviously, that you're not going to see from McConnell anytime soon or ever again in the future. And we got to look back at some examples of McCarthy where he has been hardline against hardcore conservatives and, and good conservatives who were on our side. After all, McCarthy did initially defend Liz Cheney after her initial anti-Trump outburst in the aftermath of January 6th. He supported her. He wanted to keep her in the number three position in the House. He supported her in that first closed-door vote, but then she couldn't stop running her. Only when she couldn't stop running her mouth, when she started trash-talking him, did he finally throw her over the side and basically say, okay, fine, we're done with her. 
And also, among other things, McCarthy was very quick to condemn Madison Cawthorn, who was, of course, on his way out of Congress now. After Cawthorn claimed that he had been to coke-fueled orgies in D.C. with high-level political people that some people seem to think confirmed a lot of conspiracy theories, what have you, McCarthy condemned him, he met him privately to chew him out, and then basically threw him to the wolves and allowed him to be primaried, which is why um, Cawthorn is not coming back to Congress uh, tomorrow when when the new uh, session is sworn in. Jacob, what is your take on this? Do you think this is true that McCarthy can be swayed by the so-called far right, or is he another wolf in sheep's clothing? No, no, he is not. He's not necessarily ideologically aligned with any faction of the Republican Party. He is like a leaf in the wind. He is a professional politician. He is in it for himself. And if the it, it depends on who is louder in their activism. If Trump can remain a force within the Republican Party, then McCarthy as Speaker of the House is going to be pushed further in the Trumpian direction. And I just want to point out the term "rhino," where that came from. That became popular during the Tea Party era. Yes. People who were not sufficiently Tea Party in the Republican Party who did not align with the fiscal conservatism of the Tea Party enough, they were considered rhinos. And uh but it, you know that's kind of it's kind of evolved in the sense that a lot of people, a lot of Trump supporters, they forgot what the Tea Party was about and they call anyone who isn't sufficiently pro Trump a rhino, which it, it's kind of murky in my opinion the, the term doesn't really have much of a meaning just because the you know Trump is not a Tea Party conservative. No. And this is something this is where the lines get blurred between Tea Party and Trumpism. You know, Trump defeated all the Tea Party conservatives in 2016 to push the party in more of a centrist direction economically. But as far as McCarthy goes, he he is a pre-Tea Party conservative and as such he has managed to survive both the Tea Party wave and the Trump wave and it's because he is a principleless politician. And if you want to change a party's direction, if you want to change the country's direction, you need a bunch of principleless politicians who are in it for themselves because, you know, again, people like that are not wedded to their ideology the way that a Paul Ryan is wedded to fiscal conservatism. And that's why I am willing, and especially considering that Trump has endorsed him, I'm willing to give McCarthy a shot. Very cautious optimism that out of the three, he is of, between him, Romney, Ron Romney, McDaniel, and Mitch McConnell. He's the least awful by far. He's the one that Trump could work with most closely. He's the one who could actually get some stuff done. So to cover his, again, his challenger or challengers real quickly, does Andy Biggs have a chance of being speaker? Pretty much not. Realistically, no. The Freedom Caucus has never had broad support with the GOP conference, even though they're at their largest now. They have like 40-something members now. They've never been popular with the rest of the House GOP. Just for reference, in past years, the Freedom Caucus would most often nominate for speaker Florida's Daniel Webster. You may remember that name from earlier in the year. He's the guy who almost got primaried out by Laura Loomer in, in Florida. So that that guy, he was their he was their go to guy to run for speaker against Boehner and, and Ryan, what have you. He got in the election in January of 2015 against uh, Boehner. Webster hit his peak. He got 12 votes in favor of him that were essentially protest votes against Boehner. He then got nine votes in October that same year in the special election where Paul Ryan won. And then by January of 2017, with Ryan having firmly solidified his speakership, Webster got one vote. So even at his peak with 12 votes, he has never had even the Freedom Caucus's own nominee never had the support of the whole Freedom Caucus. He didn't get 30 something votes. He got less than half that. So even then, Biggs, you know, having gotten 30 something votes in the closed door vote. Uh, he's not likely at best case scenario, he could get between 30 or 40 votes. And that, of course, is not enough to win the speakership, especially if- just to cut in just cut in real quick. The what exactly is the purpose of the Freedom Caucus? Because, I mean, I know originally they were founded as hardcore Tea Partiers, hardcore libertarians, fiscal yeah. conservatives. 
Um, Trump attacked them harshly after being elected because they would not support his health care bill because they didn't think it was conservative enough. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, they've they haven't really been united in anything. I mean, you've got like the head of the Freedom Caucus, I can't remember his name. He supported the pro homosexual marriage bill that just passed. Oh, so God. he was in, he was in support of it. Now, the rest of the Freedom Caucus members to a man and woman did not support it, but their leader did support it. So they were divided on that. And the same with uh, Daniel Webster and other issues. And so what exactly do they stand for at this point? Like, it's That's kind a of a question. mishmash of. Yeah, they were basically the the legislative caucus of the Tea Party. That's what they were. They were they were the Tea Party branch, basically. Uh, that's Scott Perry, by the way. You were thinking of he is the Scott uh, Perry, yeah. He, yeah he is the guy who succeeded uh, Biggs. Biggs was the most recent former chair. He stepped down in January of of last year, so one year ago. Um, but that actually is what I wanted to kind of bring attention to is that yeah, they are fiscal conservatives. They're basically like if Ted Cruz was in the House, he would have been a member of the Freedom Caucus. It, it, oh, yeah. in, in more recent years. It has kind of shifted in a slightly more Trumpian direction. I mean, fat lot of good that does us now that Trump isn't president anymore. But, you know, you got people Ron like DeSantis was a member that he was he was one of the earliest members. That's true. But you got obviously Lauren Boebert's a member, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Paul Gozar. So I think under Biggs's leadership, it has gotten better. And because Biggs, I'll say this much. Biggs would be very based as speaker. He is one of the most solid members of Congress. One big metric for that, in my opinion, is that in addition to the fact that he, as chair of the Freedom Caucus, did shift it in a more pro-Trump direction, which is a good development, he has been one of, of, of all the members of Congress, of the over 200 Republican members of Congress. He is one of only six. You can count just enough on two hands, half a dozen, six Republican members of Congress who actually gives a crap about the January 6th political prisoners in that he has frequently visited the D.C. gulags where they are being held. He has repeatedly advocated for them for restoring their civil rights and at this point their human rights, even beyond just basic American civil rights, just human rights, due process, everything. He, along with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Paul Gozar, Louis Gomer, and Bob Good, those are the six who have frequently advocated for the J6 protesters. So, so he's a good guy. I would support him. People have kind of thrown his name around for running for higher office in Arizona, like Senator Governor, and I think he'd do very well there. He's very popular. Arizona's got a lot of solid members of Congress, let's be honest, and solid candidates who run, and he is among the absolute best. It's unfortunate he does not have a shot. So then the one other person to be talked about here, what about Steve Scalise? Again, the Washington Examiner reports that some are prepping him to basically do what Paul Ryan did seven years ago and be prepared to come in uh, like a white knight who will save the party from the chaos of a very, very mixed bag level of support that McCarthy has. I'll say this. I like Steve Scalise, too. He has been far more in tune with the base than anyone else in Republican leadership on issues like immigration and whatnot. He's always been very, very solid. And I think a huge part of this is the fact that, as I said, he's from Louisiana, which is a deep red state. You look at everyone else in recent Republican leadership. McCarthy is from California. Paul Ryan was from Wisconsin. Eric Cantor was from North Virginia. John Boehner was from Ohio in the pre-Trump era, back when it was a heavily a blue state that would vote for Obama and you know guys like Sherrod Brown. If Tim Ryan had run for the Senate at the time in Ohio at the time when John Boehner was in Congress, Tim Ryan probably would have won. That was Ohio oh, yeah, back absolutely, then, absolutely for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Scalise is the one bright spot. As this is a guy from a red state, he's from the Deep South, a very very Republican district in a very very red state. And that's why he has been much more willing to support President Trump's agenda, the America First agenda, things like immigration, again, an America First approach and whatnot. And beyond that, it also needs to be said, ever since surviving his almost life-threatening injuries in the uh, congressional baseball shooting, you know, there was a brief period, I remember that, when the immediate news coverage in the aftermath of that, 
he was on death's door. There was he, his condition was upgraded from like critical to grave. Like they were basically getting ready to announce that you know the first member of Congress in how many decades had been assassinated in office. He ultimately survived. He pulled through. He spent many many months with a cane, you know, struggling to walk. He has gained a, a hero status among the GOP. He is now decisively more well known as a result of that among the average Republican voter, the Republican base than anyone else. I mean, just just think how many other number twos and number threes in congressional leadership are well known. How many Democratic voters even know who uh, who Steny Hoyer is? Right. You know, how many Republican voters knew really who Eric Cantor was up until his big primary defeat? Scalise is much more well known. He has a higher profile, a solid conservative, solid conservative record. So. If he were to jump in to replace McCarthy, he would absolutely be, I think, the best realistic conservative alternative. So I would not at all be opposed to Scalise being speaker. I have said he he should be, but he repeatedly has shot that down. He has said he's already run for and has been appointed as the incoming uh, House Majority Leader. He will remain as the number two in House Republican leadership. So unless something else happens just out of nowhere and McCarthy's bid just comes crashing down— does Scalise have a chance? But again, seven years ago, that was exactly what happened. So we'll have to wait and see again, just uh, tomorrow, 24 hours from now, we will know the results of this election. And again, it's not the worst case scenario of someone like McCarthy, again, compared to someone like McConnell or an absolute failure like uh, Ron or Romney McDaniel. And as it were, her challenger, uh, Harmie Dillon, who we talked about in the previous episode, who's not so great either. This could be one bright spot for Republican leadership improving in the aftermath, in the ashes of the defeat of 2022. Well, the one thing that you pointed out that all of the Republican leaders, they tend to be from blue states. The Democrats don't do that. When Democrats elect leaders, their leaders, whether it's Speaker of the House, whether it's Senate Majority Leader, whether it's the whips, they're always from deep blue states, and they're ideologically aligned with the leadership of the party. And the leadership of the party is typically slightly left to center of moderates, and they're always in line with what MSNBC and the other left-wing news outlets want. You don't even get a speaker who is in line with, say, Fox News, the majority of the Fox News pundits. Typically, they're slightly to the left of Fox News. And the reason for this is because the Republican Party simply refuses to go to the mat for ideology. All they want to do is win elections, and they feel like they have to cater to the suburban college-educated voter that would typically vote for Democrats if they want to win elections. They need to present speakers who are like that college-educated suburban voter in California, whereas if they would nominate people who are from Louisiana, who are from Ohio today, from Missouri, from Florida, from Alabama, then they would have a much better shot at connecting with their voters and getting their voters energized. Because if you think about it, uh, the leadership of the Democratic Party, you've got Nancy Pelosi. From, of course, California, and not just California, San Francisco, like gay capital of the world, one of the most liberal cities in the world. You've got Steny Hoyer, who's from Maryland. Uh, Again, the incoming House, uh, presumably minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, is from New York. Between Steny Hoyer and Pelosi and Hakeem Jeffries and the rest, you're right, yeah, they're all from the states that represent the Democratic Party, and especially their shift towards coastal elites. Uh, And speaking of coastal elites, the Republican Party is insistent on breaking into blue territory where they have the least shot of holding seats. So, for instance, the Republican Party will spend a whole bunch of money on minority districts like Myra Flores' district. They'll spend a whole bunch of money on deep blue Californian districts in the suburbs or or East Coast suburban districts like on Long Island where they may win on an off year, but they're very unlikely to hold seats long term. Whereas they would have a much better chance if they invested money, invested 
people into districts like in Michigan, in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, where you have white blue collar voters who are more likely to stay with the party, like those voters in Ohio, like those voters in Missouri. Here's the problem. When you're appealing to voters who don't have a problem with homosexuality, who don't have a problem with abortion, in fact, are very much anti-pro-life, you end up having to run rhinos, people who will be socially liberal but fiscally moderate. And one such gentleman who claimed to be a (laughs) Jewish homosexual with the last name of Santos, he is one such example. (laughs) I haven't really been following this story over the past week. I read the initial New York Times write-up on him before Christmas, when before the Republican Party had actually digested who this guy was and what he had done. Um, Maybe you can bring us up to speed on what George Santos has been up to and the accusation against him. This just came out of nowhere as far as I'm concerned. The New York Times expose you mentioned uh, was written about a week before Christmas, so obviously kind of buried by the holiday schedule. But then in the aftermath of the holidays, it kind of remained the big story. It really was kind of the only really big story in American politics for pretty much the week after Christmas. I had multiple friends all messaging me with details of the story like oh wow what a scumbag this guy is i'm like okay so some uh, initially my impression was oh a a politician lied about something color me shocked but then of course i i looked into a little more (laughs) this has got to be one of the funniest stories we've ever covered here on the right take i just i just get a little grit on my face every time i think about this story because it's just it's just too good here's the basic gist A fellow by the name of George Santos is the new representative-elect from New York's 3rd Congressional District. This was one of the flips. This was one of the blue seats that flipped red, as you said, it's in the Long Island area. So one of the highlights for the GOP. Again, New York was one of five states where the GOP did really well on average. It was really one of the few states where a red wave happened, and this was part of that red wave. Uh, For context, George Santos was actually, he was the nominee for this same seat once before in 2020, where he lost to incumbent Democrat Thomas Sawazi by a 12.5% margin. So a pretty crushing defeat. Then two years later, he comes back to run again uh, after redistricting, of course, redrawing the, the boundaries of this district, as well as the fact that Suwazi retired from the seat to run for governor, which, of course, he lost that primary. Uh, Santos ended up winning this time, defeating Democratic nominee Robert Zimmerman by an eight-point margin. Uh, this new district, by the way, is a D plus two seat. So definitely a, a bit of an upset and contributing to the House's extremely narrow majority for the Republican Party. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, uh, the gray lady, the New York Times, really finally did some actual journalism here. This is real journalism. This is not, you know, leftist partisan hackery. They exposed him as a habitual liar. I mean, a a compulsive liar, a man who literally every other word out of his mouth is a lie, even about the most irrelevant things that you literally don't need to lie about. It's just glorious. Let's just go through the list here. The initial summary. Quick, in the age of social media, you wouldn't think this level of lying would be possible. Oh, no. Like you wouldn't that any politician would get away with this in the age of social media. Maybe back in the 80s and the 90s, you, uh, people it would be conceived that someone might could do something like this, but you wouldn't think that this would be possible nowadays. Exactly. When everybody is an internet sleuth now with quick access to, to you know all the resources of the internet, it would be so easy to debunk, to debunk this stuff. And it does beg the question of how in the world he got away with these lies during the campaign. This Zimmerman guy he beat must have been one of the worst candidates ever that he did no oppo research on his Republican opponent whatsoever, especially considering this guy's run for office once before. So you have that record to go off of. But anyway, let's just a quick summary, and then I'll go back and into greater detail of each one. George Santos lied about his high school education, his college education, his race, his grandparents' origin story, his occupation, his residence, his mother's occupation, 
the circumstances of his mother's death, his sexuality, and last but not least, his criminal record. <laughs> so let's go back to these one by one. This is just, this is too good. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, my friends. He claims to have attended the elite prep school Horace Mann. The school says it has no record of his attendance. He claimed to have earned a bachelor's degree from Baruch College, which also said it has no record of his attendance. This has got to be just the, the most hilarious slash egregious one to me. It's both. It's simultaneously sad and funny. He claimed to be Jewish and that his grandparents were Ukrainian Jews who fled to Brazil to escape the Holocaust. Both of his grandparents, these are his maternal grandparents, his mom's parents, they fact a quick fact check revealed they were both born in Brazil and neither of them nor his mother had any ancestors who were Ukrainian or Jewish. In <laughs> like blatant, oh, complete boy. opposite of the truth. He initially described himself on the campaign as a proud American Jew before backtracking and claiming to be a Catholic. He kind of had some, like, he was raised Catholic, but had some, like, Jewish heritage. It was all just convoluted. He claimed subsequently, after this expose, in an interview with the New York Post, it's the funniest part, when he says, basically, when I identified as Jewish, I didn't mean Jewish. I meant Jew-ish. But I'm, like, basically, the, the... Like a Jew. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, was he, did he, was he telling the Post that by calling himself Jew-ish, he identifies culturally with Jews even though he has no Jew in him or that he's just got a little bit of Jew in him? I mean, what, what is he trying to say exactly? I think maybe he went to a synagogue once with some of his friends in the Jew, his Jewish friends in the neighborhood. <laughs> I don't know, but when he was a kid. I don't know, but that's just it. Is that obviously the, the use of ish implies like, oh, kind of like you know i'm i'm kind of christian ish or i'm athletic ish you know like kind of do but you're not 100 percent. but obviously the word jewish in the ish in this context does not mean partially jewish means jewish it means you're a jew jews do not run around saying i'm jew they say i'm jewish you know like it's just oh it's just so bad that was the stupidest thing imaginable he plays it off like a joke too you just got exposed for this blatant complete lie about your grandparents origin story which is really messed up you're claiming they're holocaust survivors and they never were but your response to that is to joke about it like bro that that just shows complete a level of disconnect that i did not think possible we got to keep going through this because there's just more and more he lied about his occupation he claimed to have worked for both goldman sachs and citigroup but both companies, like the schools, have publicly stated they have no records of him ever working for either of them. His residence, this one's a doozy because, you know, politicians will carpet bag and, you know, move like just a few blocks over to be in a district all the time. But this guy took it to a whole new level. He previously listed as his residence a house in Elmhurst, Queens, which is outside the boundaries of this new third district. He later moved to a house in Whitestone, Queens, which is just inside the district. But then he claimed that his apartment was vandalized by stones and eggs due to his being a Republican. The landlord, the owner of the apartment, and another occupant of that complex have all come forward to claim that no such incident ever occurred. <laughs> he's, he's pushing he, – you can see there's a pattern here. He's trying to paint himself in, as a victim in every sense possible. Yeah. Because this, he's learned that in America, we reward victims. We don't reward heroes. We don't reward people who are entrepreneurial. We reward victims. So if you want to run from office for office, you got to come up with, you got to check several boxes of how you are a victim. Uh, even if it means making it up. Uh, he also, he further claimed, or 
the other the people in the complex you know the landlord the owner the other occupants they also have claimed he apparently never lived in that apartment or frequently occupied it during the campaigns they never saw him coming and going they never heard him there in the apartment he he didn't really use it that much apparently the landlord said he actually moved out of that apartment by august of 2022 so well before the election but was still registered at the address and continued to receive mail there all of which he threw out among the mail he received at that address was the official certification of his election victory And he was never there to pick it up because he didn't actually live there. In February, going a little further back in the timeline here, in February of 2016, he had registered to vote in Florida. Then six days after the election in early November, he re-registered to vote in New York once again. So, okay, maybe deciding, oh, I got to go cast my vote in a swing state rather than in a a state that's obviously going to go one direction. Uh, Just little things like that. Moving along here, his mother, this one blew me away. He lied about his mother's occupation and the circumstances of her death. He claimed that his mother was, quote, the first female executive of a major financial institution, end quote. Doesn't name the name of the company, of course, which would help. Uh, but in fact, again, fact checking, real fact checking here confirms that she actually served as a domestic worker and a home care nurse. Never worked in finance. Hey, oh, uh, <laughs> respect to the guy for able to being able to get away with this. I mean, this is. This is impressive, to say the least. It really is. Yeah, it is impressive. Until, of course, he didn't get away with it anymore. He he got over the electoral finish line. Yeah, that's what but, I mean. He got elected. But, long yeah. enough to get elected. But we'll see what happens, though, with that. And we'll come back to that in a bit. But further on his mother, this one. This one is just as aggravating as the Holocaust lie. He claims that she survived 9-11 after being in the South Tower and that she died a few years later due to injuries or complications from the smoke inhalation and whatnot. She actually died in 2016 of things unrelated to anything involved with 9-11. So he claimed his mom was a 9-11 survivor slash victim. He claimed his grandparents were Holocaust victims. None of that was true. So that's the part where it starts to get aggravating. Let's get back to the part where it's kind of funny. He's lied about his sexuality. He ran as an openly gay Republican. You know, again, I'm a, I'm a gay Jewish Republican, you know, identity politics. But records show that he married a woman in 2012 and divorced her in 2019. So as recently as three years ago, he was married to a woman. So that kind of raises some questions. He claimed, and especially when you consider that in October of this year, he claimed that he was, quote, openly gay, have never had an issue with my sexual identity in the past decade. Okay, well, records clearly indicate that for the past decade, you were married to a woman. So clearly you did have uh, problems with that. And then for one, the one last bit here on the sexuality part, in an attempt to virtue signal after the Orlando Pulse uh, nightclub shooting, you know, the gay nightclub that was shot up in Florida, he claimed that his company lost four employees in the shooting. None of the 49 victims of that shooting had any connection to any of the companies listed by Santos when he said this. So, so again, trying to claim, oh, I had employees who died in a nightclub shooting. My mom died in 9-11. My grandparents almost died in the Holocaust. He's been involved over the course of his life in several eviction and personal debt cases in both the U.S. and Brazil. He apparently spent some time in Brazil when he was younger. In 2008, he confessed to check fraud charges in Brazil. He also, when he moved out of that apartment, we mentioned that he didn't really live in in August of 2022. He alleged, according to the landlord, he left behind $17,000 worth of damages. I can only imagine how he pulled that off. Over the course of the mid-2010s, he was evicted three times from properties in Queens in Jackson Heights, Whitestone, and Sunnyside, all due to failing to pay his rent. In, oh, man. Uh, in the case, so maybe, maybe he can relate to millennials in that sense. Then I don't know. In the second eviction from Whitestone, a court actually entered a civil judgment against him for twelve thousand two hundred eight dollars. In 2013, a court in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, filed a notice of embezzlement charges against him. 
And then a year later in 2014, he accepted a loan of several thousand dollars from an acquaintance, which he claimed uh, was to enable him to move in with his boyfriend at the time. Although, again, according to records, he was married to a woman at this time, but he refused to pay back the money, which, again, was a loan. A judge ultimately ruled that the money counted as a gift and ordered Santos to repay it with interest, which he still has not done to this day eight years later. (laughs) He has since denied committing any crime. Bring back debtor's prison. Uh, Say again? Bring back debtor's prison. Oh, my goodness. Yes, this guy put this guy in line first. He has since said on this matter, quote, I'm not a wanted criminal in any jurisdiction. It's so great that you have to say that, right? Forget I'm not a crook. That's a whole new level of like, you know, get really putting the cart ahead of the horse here just to say, I'm not a criminal, guys. By the way, I'm not a criminal. If, if they come breaking down my doors because they track me down to uh, which pizza box I had in the room, I swear I'm not a criminal. <laughs> so bad. Again, there's so much more. These are just the highlights, if you want to call them that, I guess technically lowlights. So the, the question is, as funny as this all is, what is to be taken away from all this? What, what's the reaction been and what should the reaction be? After the campaign, uh, initially, his campaign initially issued a statement calling the New York Times story, quote, a smear and defamatory. He has since issued a total non-apology statement, admitting to a few lies while ignoring or defending others. He said, quote, I'm embarrassed and sorry for having embellished my resume. We do stupid things in life, end quote. He's used that phrase a lot. Embellished. I embellished my resume. No, 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 no. There's embellishing. And then there's just lying, dude. Like, seriously, it's one thing to just say, like, oh, you know, you you were uh, an intern at Goldman Sachs. So you claim you worked at Goldman Sachs. No, no, you never set foot in the Goldman Sachs building, bro. And you claimed you worked there. So that's there's the difference. I mean, that that's such political speak. Obviously, the left is having a field day with this. They are just roasting him, demanding he resign. They're saying, this is proof that Republicans are liars. They're, they're trying to nail him to the door of the GOP as a whole. Uh, but what has the right's reaction been up to this point? Uh, one forceful condemnation came from the Republican Jewish Coalition, which supported his candidacy and hosted multiple events with him. They issued a full condemnation saying he's no longer welcome at their events. Uh, my personal favorite, though, has got to be Oh, she came through for us, man. I, I still can't stand I, – I I don't really like it when people say they don't trust Tulsi Gabbard. I mean I get it. She's a Democrat. She was a Democrat recently. I get it. But I am convinced at this point she does more good for our side than bad. I'm willing to accept converts. You know, Jeff Van Drew was a Democrat who's in Congress who switched to the Republican Party after the first impeachment of Trump. She is doing more good for us at this point than bad, and never before has that been more evident than, of course, she's been guest hosting for Tucker Carlson every now and then. And she had Santos on for his his first interview post-leak, you know, after the story came out, after the allegations came out that he was a total liar. His first TV interview was with Tulsi Gabbard. And this might just be the proof that if nothing else, he may be a liar, but he may just also be stupid because he probably walked into this genuinely thinking this was going to be a softball interview. Oh, it's Fox News. They'll be nice to me. No, 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 no. Tulsi did not let him get away with any of this. We're going to play this here. Um, the the whole video is great. It's about eight and a half minutes long. We'll put a link in the description below. Uh, to get through this, we'll play it back at 1.25 speed. So if they sound a little Ben Shapiro-ish with talking a little too fast, uh, you'll know why. We got to go through pretty much the whole thing because it's just golden. So here's her opening question and get a load of his response. It's great. Um, the first question I really want to ask you now that all this has been refe- revealed is what does the word integrity mean to you? Well, Tulsi, thank you for having me. You know, um, so to answer your question, integrity is very important. And like I, I said to the New York Post, embellishing what, what does it mean, though? What does it mean? Because the, the meaning of well, the word actually matters in practice. 
Of course. It, it means to, to carry yourself in an honorable way. And I made a mistake. And I think humans are flawed, and we all make mistakes, Tulsi. Um, I think we can all look at ourselves in the mirror and admit that once in our life we made a mistake. I'm having to admit this in national television for the whole country to see, and I have the courage to do so because I believe that in order to move past this and move forward and be an effective member of Congress, I have to face my mistakes, and I'm facing them. Um, the reality is, is that I remain committed to doing everything I set forward in my campaign. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a fake. I, I, I didn't materialize <laughs> from thin air. I worked damn hard to get where I got my entire life. Life wasn't easy. It didn't start off easy. As I've said it many, many times, I come from abject poverty. I made some mistakes and I own up to them. And now I want to put this past me so I can deliver for the American people. So uh, first off, I love that she didn't let him get away Ooh, with it. First of all, no. first of all I, I, he's go. not supposed to be delivering for the American people. He's supposed to be delivering for his district. Yes. See, this is the problem with politicians. No matter what office they're running, if they're running for dog catcher, they, they think that they have to talk like they're running for president. Yes, that's that's very, very true. And again, that can lead to, you know, some people doing good, you know, with a national profile, even though they represent one district, like someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But it can also lead to someone's downfall, like Eric Cantor. That was what a lot of people believe that was one big reason he got primary is because he was neglecting his district in Virginia to focus on his aspirations for Republican leadership and climbing the ladder and becoming speaker himself one day. So, yeah, and it's total you know political platitudes. I like that she doesn't let him get away with it initially. She asks, what does integrity mean? He's like, oh, well, integrity is very important. She's like, no, no, that's not what i asked man i asked what does it mean and she drilled him on that and yeah he, again there it is i am i made a mistake we're all humans we're all flawed like no 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 a mistake is dropping a coffee mug and breaking it by accident because you know it was too hot or something a mistake is not lying about literally every aspect of your life lies that by the way can be easily debunked things that are demonstrably false your heritage your grandparents backstory your mom's backstory where you worked where you went to school these are all easily debunked statements that's not a mistake and furthermore he claims oh i, I have the courage i have the courage to speak out so you have the courage to admit that you lied that's not courage that is that's what's expected of you at that point courage is taking a stand like we said uh andy biggs and the other five members of congress going to the dc gulag to visit the j6 prisoners and to advocate for restoring their human rights that's courage all right this is not courage this is you backtracking and getting absolutely humiliated. And this is just the beginning. It gets better and better. The thing is, Congressman-elect, uh, integrity means, yes, carrying yourself with honor, but it means it means telling the truth, being a person of integrity. Of and if I were one of those in New York's third district right now, now that the election is over, and I'm finding out all of these lies that you've told, not just one little lie or one little embellishment, these are blatant lies. M- my question is, do you have no shame? You have no shame in the people who are now you're asking to trust you to go and be their voice for them, their families and their kids in Washington. Tulsi, I can say the same thing about the Democrats and and the party. Look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been lying to the American people for 40 years. He's the president of the United States. Democrats resoundly support him. Do they have no shame? This, Look, this I've is, made this very this clear. Is not, this I is made, not about the Democratic Party, though. This is about your relationship, no, frankly, with the people who've entrusted you to go and, and fight for them. And I think one of the questions that... Yeah, that's before we get to the next part. I, I just love that, by the way. Again, he tries to immediately shift to a non sequitur, something totally unrelated. Oh, well, what about the Democrats? The Democrats lie. Yeah, we know this, okay? First off, as we said before... Democrats don't care about hypocrisy, more hypocrisy. They don't care if you call them out for lying or saying one thing and doing another. They don't care about that. We've established that. But more to the point, as Tulsi says, as Tulsi cuts him off, again, she's so good. She doesn't let him get away with it. That has nothing to do with what you did here. I love how she just so boldly asks, have you no shame? That is just, just so well, perfect. This is, the, this is the problem with a lot of Republicans is they look at, we got Joe Biden in the White House. We've got someone who is a dementia patient. 
someone who isn't even really fit to live on a drive on his own. He would have to be with someone at all times if he were a private citizen. He has to have the East <laughs> money come let him know that it's time for him to go back with his handlers and get away from people before he says something stupid. So we see that this is the example that we have of a president. This is what the other party supports. This is what they elected. Then we can get away with anything. You know, If, if this is the standard, then – you can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, you can say whatever you want as long as you get across the finish line. And if anyone accuses you of fraud, oh, but the other side, oh, but the other team, look what, look at what they're doing. What I'm doing is nothing compared to what they're doing. Exactly. And again, the other team has every institution in the country on their side. They have the mainstream media. They have big tech, social media. So they can afford to do that. With the exception of Twitter. But yes, yeah, exactly. They can afford, they can get away with it. Hollywood will cover for them. Their friends on the late night talk show, so-called comedians like Jimmy Kimmel, they'll cover for them, all right? The right doesn't have that benefit. And and he's proven right here. You're on the one, one of the only right-wing friendly TV channels, and they're not going easy on you, which shows, of course, we do hold our side to standards that the left does not enforce. But again, this it doesn't even help the Republican Party. He didn't help advance our agenda by lying about all this stuff. He was not even he didn't even get a lot of national attention. I never even heard of this guy before this story broke. I was aware we had flipped some seats. I didn't see him as nothing more than yeah, just I was aware names. of this particular seat. I knew that we had I, I knew about the New York third, knew it was close, knew it was a, it was a big deal that we had won, but I, I didn't yeah, you're, just like you, I didn't know the name off the top of my head of the guy who flipped it. That really probably hits home to a lot of people is is are you Jewish? We've got a letter that your campaign sent out earlier this year, which reads as follows. As a proud American Jew, I've been to Israel numerous times for educational, business, and leisurely trips. You said there in that letter that you are, quote, a proud American Jew. How do you, how do you explain that? My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew, I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign, I'd say, guys, I'm Jew-ish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. So, uh, so that's again, he doubles down. I love, by the way, whoever does the the lower thirds, the uh, the Chirons on screen for Tucker's show is always on point. The for, the video version of this is so good. We'll have a link in the description below. The Chiron right now uh, below the the screen, the split screen of them says George. Santos colon I'm not Jewish I'm Jew-ish with the with the dash it's just <laughs> I, I it's so good at the car it was, oh, that's man. one of the best ones since the time that Tucker had uh Michael Avenatti on and the Chiron on screen literally called him creepy porn lawyer like it's just you gotta love the people who do this stuff. <laughs> shout out to whoever does the Chirons for Tucker show you're a legend um but, so he's claiming he's claiming that he does have Jew in him he, he's in doubling down yeah because we literally just went over that his parent his mom and his mom's parents were not Jewish. They were Brazilian, no Ukrainian or Jewish ancestry. I know about enough about this. A, a Jewish friend of mine told me that uh, by Jewish uh, law, by Jewish culture, at the, of course, if you're both your parents are Jewish, then you're Jewish. But at the very least, if your mother is Jewish, then you are also considered Jewish. You may be like biologically half, but you are considered to be you know, part of the Jewish culture. So someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, his dad is Greek, his mom is Jewish. He is still considered Jewish in that sense. But again, in this case, it's false. We know for a fact George Santos's mother is not Jewish. Now, we don't know about his dad, but even if his dad is Jewish, then it's still kind of debatable at that point, you know, within Jewish culture. But he doubles down. He says, oh, my heritage is Jewish. No, it's not. It was literally proven. Well, Your heritage is not it, Jewish. It could, 
it could be in the same way that AOC has Jewish heritage. Like she mentioned that her some of her ancestors were Jews. They were Sephardic Jews who escaped Spain. Uh, maybe George Santos had a great 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 grandfather who was Sephardic and got kicked out of Spain and then eventually wound up in Brazil. But the the point is like this is kind of like your average. It's kind of like me. Like my dad's great grandfather was a hundred percent Choctaw, so I am like a whatever one thirty second one sixty fourth Choctaw, whatever. But if you look at me, like nobody would ever think that I have any Choctaw in me, this would be like me running for office and claiming that I'm the proud descendant of Choctaws or, you know, claiming that I am Choctaw. You know, at some point, the the bloodline, you cut yourself once and that little bit of blood flows out of your veins and you are no longer part of that. Uh, This is the situation, even if, even if he's not lying and he had an ancestor way down the line who was Jewish, he is not Jewish. Like at certain point, you can't claim that ancestor because there's not enough of it in you. Look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. I, I'm going to reassure this once and for all. I'm not a facade. I'm not a persona. I, I have an extensive career that I worked really hard to achieve. And I'm going to deliver from my experience because I remain committed in delivering results for the American people. I campaigned on inflation. I campaigned on crime. I campaigned on education. I campaigned on delivering resolve for the American people. That's what the people of the 3rd Congressional District heard me on and on as I campaigned. Now it's going to be up, uh, incumbent upon me to deliver on those results. And I look forward to servicing, you're, you're servicing exactly and, right. and serving my, pe- my district. I look forward to serving my people in my district to make sure that they see that this is what... Yeah, I, I love that's the thing I, I forgot to mention previously, but he said it again. The fact you have to say, I'm not a fraud, I'm not a facade, I'm not a charade, I didn't materialize out of thin air. You have to say all of that. Does, that probably means you're probably a fraud. But also, <laughs> yeah. oh, but again, he defaults to platitudes. I campaigned on inflation. I can blah, 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 blah. And no one cares what you campaigned on, dude. You lied about who you are. And realistically, as you said before, people care more about what kind of a person is running for office than what their platform is. And the platform is important, obviously. But as he just said, like the first thing he says is inflation. I came out on inflation. Okay, so not culture war, not not crime, not degeneracy, Black Lives Matter, not transgenderism, none of that stuff. You campaign on inflation. Okay, cool. So you're no different from any other endorsed Republican. The results that people are looking yeah, well, for I- are called into question when you tell blatant lies, not embellishments. And this is, this is, I think, one of the biggest concerns, Congressman-elect, is that you don't really seem to be taking this seriously. You've apologized. You said you've made mistakes, but you've outright lied. A lie is not an embellishment on a resume. You said you worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, but they've said, we've got no record of this guy working for us. You've said you've gone to and graduated from these universities, but they've said, well, we've got no record of that. These are blatant lies, and it calls into question how your constituents and the American people can believe anything that you may say when you are standing on the floor of the House of Representatives supposedly fighting for them. That's the real issue here. Well, look, I, and I, I agree with what you're saying. And as I stated, and I continue, we can debate my, my resume and how I worked with firms such as Goldman is and Is it debatable or is it just false? No, it's very debatable. No, it's not false at all. It's, it's debatable. I can- uh, I, it's, it's debatable. We can debate my resume. This is another one he doubles down on. He doubles down on, oh, no, I did work for them. He, I think, trying to piece it together because it's kind of hard to even understand because the platitudes he's throwing out. I think he's trying to backtrack and claim, oh, well, I had a company that did, like, independent contract work with Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, which is not what he originally said. He originally said he worked it was an employee for Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. and Citigroup. Now he's trying to backtrack. He's like, oh, it's debatable. We, we can debate the uh, the specifics of all this. And this is this is the part where it gets really good. He just, when he goes in, again, he doubles down, triples down on having worked for these guys to prove he's a Wall Street guy, right? Because that'll make you relatable is I'm a Wall Street guy. He doubles down and says the stupidest thing in this whole interview. And Tulsi destroys him for it. She absolutely just ruins him. She takes away whatever little manhood he had left 
on national television. I can sit down and explain to you what you can do in private equity, in, in capital intro, via servicing limited partners and general partners. And we can have this discussion that's going to go way above the American people's head. But that's not what I campaigned on. I campaigned on delivering results <laughs> wow. for the American people by, by lowering inflation. I can sit down. And if you want to have that discussion, I'd be glad to, Tulsi, to explain that to you Con- and make sure that we, we, we settle the score. This is not about settling scores. And I think you just you just kind of highlighted, I think, my concern, the concern that people at home have. You're saying that this discussion will go way above the heads of the American people, basically insulting their intelligence. So not only are you now <laughs> that's backtracking not, that's not what I'm lies saying. that you've told, but, but you're saying that, that you can't explain it saying. in a way that your constituents would actually be able to understand. I can explain it in a way. If, you give, me, if you give me the time, I can easily give the If you give me the time, I can easily explain it for you. I love it. that moment. Oh, the video is so good. The moment he says the first thing, like, go over the heads of the American people, she does kind of a double take. She blinks twice, her eyebrows rise, and then she just gets this giant grin on her face. And she's like, that's it. That's the kill shot right there. Yeah, he treats his now constituents, who now have to deal with this guy for at least two years, like they're idiots. Like, oh, trying to explain it and tell the truth would just be too complicated for you. At the very end there, too, again, another politician thing. He tries to get, oh, I, I could explain it if you give me the time. If you give me the time, I could explain it. You're not giving me enough time. You have had now, at this point, seven minutes. He, she did her little intro, and then about a minute and a half in, she finally brings him on. It's and he's now, been filibustering the entire time. Exactly. He's been tossing meaningless word salads that don't mean anything. You doubled down on the lie that your heritage is Jewish. You've doubled down on the lie of who you worked for. You've said, oh, I'm embellished my resume. I made a mistake. Humans are flawed. You've had all this time to explain it, and you haven't explained it. But of course, once the host calls him out on that, he's like, no, you haven't given me enough time. You keep interrupting me. He tries to gaslight and turn it back on the host like the host is the problem here. So here, here's the final bit of the clip. His last pitiful attempt at justifying his lies regarding employment before Tulsi shuts him down. As, as in when investors are looking for capital and I'm sitting there doing due diligence on the on the appetite and what they're looking for, right? And we work alongside GPs and LPs to help them place this capital. This is what I was doing and that's when I... Using acronyms, by the way, uh, hoping that people won't know what he means by that, GPs and LPs. I don't know what he means by that, just for the record. Maybe people in finance know that. But again, there he is trying to use stuff that will, as he said go over the heads of the viewers Mm -hmm. and listeners worked extensively with these firms and many other firms at my time as I was v- vice president of Linkbridge Investors. So this isn't a, this isn't a made up narrative, but I feel like nobody really wants to sit down and talk about it. Everybody just wants to push me and call me a liar. Look, well, I Congressman embellished my Congressman Alex Santos, we, we've given you a lot of time. I think the time that is owed is to the people of New York's third. Uh, it's hard to imagine how they could possibly trust your explanations when you're not really even willing to admit the depth of your deception to them. Thank you so much for being here and joining us. The most that can be said is that he is very lucky, I think, it was Tulsi and not Tucker. Tucker would have just completely vaporized him in half the time. Tulsi Tulsi is like, she's that sweet-talking, smooth-talking, like, assassin who's going to whisper sweet nothings in your ear as she slits your throat. Tucker would have made it more of death by a thousand Tucker faces. Like, he just would have, he'd be laughing in Santos's face. He'd be openly mocking him. He would have, he would have called him Georgie Boy or something like that. Like, he just, he <laughs> would have, I would have loved to see that showdown. But man, that was uh, pitiful. But it was funny. Again, I approach this story with a mood of it was funny. It's entertaining to me. I love this stuff. Well, our politics is so far in the dumps at this point, you have to laugh to avoid crying. <laughs> I mean, you, you have to find some kind of bit of humor in it uh, to avoid just completely despairing over the future of your country. Because we, you know, Democrats have reached an all new low. 
And Republicans like Santos are looking at them and saying, hey, if they can do it, I can do it and get away with it. And they get elected and they think, oh, I got away with it without thinking, hey, I'm up for reelection in two years. And all these donors who gave to me because I was a gay Jewish Republican, they're not going to give me any more money because I'm not a gay Jewish Republican. <laughs> and the Democrats are going to throw everything they have at me to unseat me. And I'm not going to have any way to fight back. Oh, that's another thing. He was broke when he ran in 2020. He was allegedly broke. He um, at this point. Is it, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it eight hundred thousand dollars that he allegedly has right now? I believe he uh, claimed assets of eight hundred thousand in 2022. Somehow or another, he managed to jump from zero to eight hundred thousand in the span of two years, and we still don't know. The New York Times couldn't figure out how where that money came from, what exactly he was doing to earn all that money. And Letitia James, the AG of New York, she recently opened an investigation into him for potential fraud. So you know, we still don't really know where he gets his money from. So I don't know how his campaign was financed. He probably, however he makes his money, he probably self-financed it. But anyway, so it's just, it, it's the, it's just the state of our, it's, this is the state of our nation. Like this is where we are. You don't, you don't have genuine, honest politicians anymore who run for office because they look at the current state of affairs and they're like, well, I don't have to be honest to win an election. And if my goal is to win, you know, what else matters? And just to reflect perfectly, uh, capitalized on what you just said there about the role of politics and all this, um, how has Republican leadership responded to this? Uh, interestingly enough, of course, House Minority Leader, hopeful speaker. Kevin McCarthy has refused to condemn Santos. And this is a move, uh, Politico did a pretty good piece on this that we'll include in the description as well. Uh, basically saying this is a move that obviously is widely seen as the fact that McCarthy depends on Santos's vote. Every single vote counts. You cannot lose more than four votes if you want to be speaker and you're a Republican right now. So he says, I'm, this guy's a liar. He's toxic. He's probably not going to last very long. I don't think I'll give him any committee assignments, but I need his vote. So McCarthy and most Republican leadership has remained largely silent on this issue. They have not you know, called for investigations or anything. And then you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who there's a lot of bones to pick with Marjorie Taylor Greene as of recently. I mean, most prominently, she has apparently shifted her support and now does support McCarthy and has come into conflict with, among others, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, who still oppose McCarthy. So she has come to Santos's defense in a, a tweet thread here, four tweets. She says, quote, George Santos lied about his resume and the left is demanding he resign. Ilhan Omar says she didn't marry her brother. She lied. Elizabeth Warren said she was Native American Indian. She lied. The left said George Floyd didn't die of a drug overdose. They lied. Based. Dr. Rachel Levine, Richard Levine, says he's a woman. He lied. Adam Schiff said he had proof of Trump-Russian collusion. He lied. Eric Swalwell says he didn't have sex with a CCP spy. <laughs> he lied. Fauci said the taxpayer-funded COVID-19 virus didn't come from the Wuhan lab. He lied. The science and medical experts said the taxpayer-funded COVID vaccines would stop COVID. They lied. They also said they are safe. They lied again. The Democrats, J6 committee, and media say Trump and us Republicans organized ins insurrection on J6. They lied. The left doesn't care about lying. The real reason they're attacking George Santos is that he is the first openly gay Republican elected to Congress, and they hate him for it. I'm glad George, I'm glad George is being honest with his district now and look forward to seeing how George legislates and votes. Glad he's being honest now. Oh, thank you, Marjorie, that now he's being honest after you lied about everything. But the whole, yeah, because he's a gay Republican. First off, I love, she, if we're, she plays identity politics here. That's her response. I love she does leave out, of course, the Jewish part. She doesn't say, oh, they're attacking him because he's a gay Jewish Republican because now we know he's not Jewish, obviously. But she leaves in the gay part, which again, 
He's lied about that. He clearly lied. He says he was, he's been gay for the last 10 years. He was married to a woman for the last 10 years. He might still be straight for all we know. He, he could be bisexual. I don't know. I mean, again, I, you know how I am at this point, Jacob, with sexuality. I think homosexuality and LGBT, all that nonsense in general is fake. I think none of it is real. But within the parameters of this argument, she says, oh, he's gay, and that's why they're attacking him. No, it has nothing to do with that. It, it does, they couldn't care if he was gay and black and every other minority that they love. They're going to call him out because he's a Republican, but more importantly, he's being rightfully called out because he's a liar. He lied about everything, and it's not just the left. She puts this all on the left, like, oh, the left are the ones criticizing him. Okay, Tulsi Gabbard is most decisively not on the left anymore. Other Republican conservatives are calling on him to step down because he makes us look like fools, and he gives us one more headache that we have to answer for now, and— the overall argument. Well, her course, response to her response to his lion is Democrats are the real homophobes. Basically, yeah, like, they're the real homophobes. The lamest, the most lamest. I mean, first of all, we don't want. We, we would prefer that if you're gay and you run as Republican, you kind of keep that to yourself. Like we, yes. we don't need to know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely don't want someone who's going to run on the on a position of gay rights saying that look, Republicans are welcoming, accepting of gay people. Vote for me because of that. Because the reality is, most Republicans are not. Like most Republicans are not okay with that. No, like, we don't care if you're gay if you want to be that way that's whatever it's your business just we'll, we don't need to know about it we'll tolerate so that's, it. that in yeah. itself puts her at odds with the vast majority of her constituents in northwest georgia exactly and i really hate the word whataboutism i think a lot of times it is a cop-out but that is essentially what her argument here boils down to. She cites all every leftist thing you could think of from Fauci and Richard Levine to Ilhan Omar and Elizabeth Warren. And here's the thing. Every single thing she said there is true. Ilhan Omar lied about marrying her brother. Uh, the left spread this lie that George Floyd was murdered by a policeman. He didn't. He died of a fentanyl overdose. That is a fact that will still get you banned on social media. But it is a fact. She's right about all of that. So What? Who cares? None of that matters. What does George Santos's list of a million and one lies have to do with the left lying about the George Floyd narrative? Nothing. All right. It's completely irrelevant. It's unrelated. And there's no point in bringing that up other than, like you said, Jacob, this now mindset of, well, they lie. So clearly we should, too. That doesn't work. Again, that works for them because they have the media on their side to cover for their lies. The media will declare that the riots, the Black Lives Matter riots were fiery but mostly peaceful they will tell the mainstream these lies for any leftist any left-wing cause or any leftist person they'll cover for ilhan omar ilhan omar's wikipedia page still doesn't mention the brother scandal or even the fact that when she divorced her somali husband the father of her kids to marry a white man who was married and had kids of his own her wikipedia page doesn't mention that at all it's just that like oh she divorced and she married another person they don't mention if a republican did that of course if a republican divorced their spouse to marry their uh one of their top consult political consultants or the head of a consulting firm that worked for them that will be on their wikipedia page you know it would be but of course big tech they'll run cover for the left with one exception which we'll get to in a bit the the thing too that i gotta cover real quickly is that uh also Every single one of these individual leftists, Fauci and the rest of the Democrats, they all lied about just one thing, one big thing, but one thing nonetheless. Elizabeth Warren's Native American, whatever. This guy lied about everything. He lied about every aspect of his personal life, his professional life, his education, his upbringing, his religion or or lack thereof, his race or lack thereof. He lied about everything. He's I'm pretty sure this guy literally suffers from the condition of being a compulsive liar, which is apparently it is a real thing. Some people suffer from when they just can't help but lie. It's an instinct for them. They have to lie, even if it's unrelated, and even if it does them no good. 
and more so his lies suggest his lies i think further suggest that he suffers from a condition because these are not lies of political convenience the example she cited like fauci lying about the origins of covid that's a lie of political convenience to get something done to or deception for the purpose of advancing their agenda advancing the vaccines or what have you they've lied about joe biden being literally senile so that they can get him over the finish line in 2020 those are lies of political convenience santos's lies did very little for him again he earned the support of the republican jewish uh congress for a little bit before they denounced him because he claimed he was jewish little things like that which i'm not sure how much that contributed to his victory or not but these were not necessary lies this was an avoidable mistake that now has this guy going on national tv saying i'm not a fraud i'm not a facade i'm not a liar i'm not a criminal i'm none of these things that everyone says i am if you have to say it's like that woman you mentioned i think jacob a long time ago the, the woman who uh ran for Biden's old Senate seat in Delaware, who won the Republican nomination for the special election after Biden left to be VP. And they had a good chance of flipping that seat. But she ended up winning the nomination as a hardcore Tea Partier. And she famously had to say, I'm not a witch on like TV. And that immediately, that was it. Her campaign was over. So it's the same thing here with this guy. So uh, best of luck to you, Georgie boy, trying to survive at least two years. Again, good luck getting committee assignments to do anything meaningful for your constituents. And he has already said, apparently he has privately told allies, he does not plan to run for re-election in 2024. Womp, he has. Womp. He said that. Yep. So he is not. Okay. He, I, I was not aware of that. Yeah. That's, he, that's, uh, that's interesting. That That's basic, That's a tacit admission that you know he's done. That he, assuming he tried to run again, he'd just get primaried right out. And if he somehow became the nominee, he would lose. The Democrats would have everything they would need in their arsenal to beat him. So – well, be that the, kind of explains McCarthy's silence on the issue because yeah. if McCarthy knows that the guy is not going to run again. He doesn't have to expend en- energy trying to primary him. It does not explain MTG going off in his defense. Yeah, that, that's that a little, that, yeah. There's, That's really confusing. I don't really understand what exactly is MTG trying to accomplish with this. What is her What is her end game here? I mean, possibly it could be tied to the fact that, as we said, she now supports McCarthy for speaker and McCarthy needs this guy's vote for speaker. So she's doing the the legwork of really supporting and defending him where McCarthy can't or won't. So maybe something like that. I don't know. It's kind of a bad role to fulfill. Like you don't want to be another politician's attack dog. That's not it's not a very good role to to fill. Um, Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't really make much sense to me. But um but I mean, this is just, this, I mean, th- this is an election where a dead guy won a state house rep position in Pennsylvania. This yeah. is an election where a libertarian dropped out in a Senate race and still got over 2% of the vote. So it only makes sense that you would have a pathological liar, a psychopath win in a flip a purple seat in New York. Yeah, this is just, it, it's the state of our country. This is, this is, it's great. This is America. 2023. And believe me, we will immediately be focusing on the first few big stories of 2023, the things that will shape uh, the rest of the calendar year for good or for bad, more likely for bad, but we will see. I'm not very confident. I think 2023 will be a pretty wild year. Next time on The Right Take, uh, we will do one final proper send-off for 2022 by talking about not uh, the year in review. It will not be multiple stories uh, over the course of the year. We will be focusing on what we, what Jacob and I have agreed mutually was the single biggest white pill in the year 2022, the best news of the year. What will that be? You guys are going to have to tune in next week to find out. A little hint for you guys. I'll say this right now. It was not the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That was, that's probably, I think we could agree, Jacob, that's probably a close second to what we have in mind, right? 
Oh yeah, for sure. That's a close. Although second. that into the, the what the election kind of put a damper on that because overturning Roe v. Wade is great, but if you don't have a legislative majority to act on it, it's kind of a moot point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, but that the victory itself was still a big victory. I still say one of the great, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, conservative victory in half a century. But that wasn't number one. What was 2022's number one white pill? We'll tell you next week. So please stay tuned as always, guys. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting the show and what we do here going into our third year, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys. <laughs>